We'll book Thieve into the list. <clears throat> Thank you, everybody, for being here this evening. Another beautiful song service. A lot of songs I don't know real well, but just very powerful in meaning. Um, appreciate you being here. Appreciate you. If you're not a member of the congregation, supporting everybody here. It's, it's just such a, a benefit whenever we get to be around other Christians and praise God together. It gives us that boost um, that drives us to, to get up and do more for our God. And I hope that you feel that way too as you leave here. Last night, if you weren't with us, we talked for a short time, uh, comparatively, a short time on the idea of being bold as lions. Is that the righteous ought to be bold and that we need to find ways that we can reach out and not to be rude or dogmatic or, or anything like that, but that we will say the things that need to be said in the way they should be said when they should be said. This evening, I want to narrow the scope down just a little bit, and maybe this could have a little bit of relation and topic, but what we're going to talk about tonight is a little bit different, uh, maybe more narrowed in scope. If you've got a Bible and you'll be following along in that today, or a Bible app, whichever way you're going to be using it, you might turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. We're going to spend a lot of time in that text, and it will be on the PowerPoint for your convenience tonight, but we'll be in that place a whole lot tonight. And I want to start with one of the passages in 1 Samuel 25, uh, a Word from Abigail as she stands before the king-elect or the, uh, the, the soon-to-be king, David. 1 Samuel 25, verse 24, Abigail fell at his feet, and she said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be, and let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience, and hear the words of thine handmaiden. Now, you're going to see, or if you probably already know, that this woman's very eloquent. She's much more eloquent than I am. And if I was to say what she just said to David, it would sound more like this. And is there words that you and I dread? Can we talk? Anyone ever said, can we talk? You know, fellas, whenever your wife says, we need to talk, you know that all of a sudden you're very busy and it's later. But I'll be honest, those are scary words to us, can we talk? Because it means that something is, is going on, something is bad. Somebody has something important, potentially scary to talk about. And whenever someone asks Lee Adair, can we talk? I'll, I'll give you an insight to my heart yesterday. It's a little bit of that spirit of fear there where I panic a little bit. And on the outside, I act like nothing's wrong. And I say, sure, we can talk. What do you want to talk about? When do you want to talk? Can we do this right now? Right now. Because I can't wait. I need to know what you need to talk about. On the inside, a large bells are going off and I'm wondering what have they seen what have I done what have I said or not said and I panic because can we talk means that something is wrong in my life the Bible says that no chastisement of the Lord seems to be grievous or seems to be pleasant but it's grievous and whenever we're having to face a situation of correction Someone correcting us in our spiritual walk, it's, it's, it feels shameful. We're embarrassed by it. We wish it would be over. We want people to back out of our life. We want our privacy again. We want maybe our reputation back immediately. All of those things are all through our mind because confrontation and restoration are not a process that we often cherish. But I want to look through the story here in 1 Samuel 25, and I want to back up a little bit from where this woman stands before the king and says, can we talk? And I want us to get a better picture of all the things were going on, and we're just going to use it tonight. We're not going to go a ton of places through the scriptures, though we'll talk about a few principles, but I just want to examine this story of what led to her saying, can we talk 
and maybe some principles behind it. Maybe it'll help us out in some way. Let's start at the beginning of the chapter. The beginning of the chapter, starting in verse 1, it says that Samuel died. All the Israelites were gathered together, and they mourned him, and they buried him in the house at Ramah. And David arose, and he went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man of Moan, or Maon, excuse me, whose possessions were in Carmel, that's caramel, not caramel, just so you know, it's biblical. And he said the man was very great, and he had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep at Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, the name of his wife was Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance, but the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. Now, a couple of the players in the game here, we know David's going to be a part of it, uh, the name Nabal. I've often wondered if his parents actually gave him that name, because, you know, names mean things. You got Isaac, means like laughter, and Jacob, something like trickster and things like that, and Nabal means adult, and what mama names their son adult? But she did, I guess. And I'll tell you, this man, that was probably the best name he could have had. Because it just got worse from there. His servants referred to him as the son of Belial. He is such a man of Belial. He was a worthless man. The Bible here says he was a churlish man. Or he was argumentative and evil in all of his doings. He's a wealthy man. He's a powerful man. Maybe a man of good business mind. But he's an evil man. Now, his wife wasn't. And I'll tell you that a lot of times, and I hear this a lot, and I believe it's true that many of us men, we marry up, you know? And I think he married way up. How that happened, I don't know. But he got a woman that says not only was she beautiful, but she was a woman of good understanding. I think that speaks to her spirituality, and that will be shown all through the story. It's not that she was just educated, or that she was somebody with a doctorate degree or things like that. It's about her wisdom and her understanding of the ways of the Lord and how to apply it in life. And that will be evident too. David's down in their country. And it's not the first time that he has been there, in fact. David has been in this area before as he's fought the Philistines. In between his running around and fleeing from, from Saul, he spent quite a bit of time down in this area. So he heads down to Paran, where this man has great possessions, where he will soon encounter Nabal and his wife. And he heard that it was sheep shearing season. Verse 4, David heard in the wilderness, Nabal did shear his sheep. And this is a big deal. Now, this may seem like just a random fact in there, but this is a time of opulence. Much like the cotton farmers in this area, during October, November, sometimes way up into December, they start getting out there in, the, in their big cotton strippers and pulling cotton out of the fields, and it gets pressed in the modules, sent off to the gin, and, and they hope they can find a place to go sell that on the open market. It's a time where bills are paid. It's a time where debts are paid it's a time where now we have money to have a little bit of breathing room in the budget hopefully at the end of a good year it's a time of plenty celebration and that's what they would have been doing I grew up in a country of sheep you might think that's a little bit weird but we had a lot of sheep in southwest Colorado but one of the last things you want to do is get behind a sheep drive uh, they're not fun to get behind cows will get out of the way dogs will get out of the way I think a cat will run out of the way but a sheep all it does is get in the way but now here they are at the sheep shearing season. There's going to be great feasting going on, and bills will be paid. And so David has a request. He looks over to Nabal, and he sends some servants, and he asks something to him. He said, I want you to go. He asked this young man, and he said, uh, ask the young men, they'll show thee. Wherefore, let the young men find favor in thine eyes, 
for we come in a good day. Give, I pray thee, whatsoever cometh to thine hand unto thy servants to the Son of God. Now he's recounting to his servants to say this to Nabal. Hey, look, you know, us as servants, our, our master David has sent us, and he's requesting that you send us a portion of what you have. Now, this might seem kind of bold because which one of you is going to go to one of your neighbors and say, hey, I see you're branding a bunch of cows over there, and, you know, and uh, how about cutting a few out of the herd for us? It'd be a neighborly thing to do. Who'd turn it down, right? But who's going to ask about that? He wasn't just asking because he randomly saw somebody shearing sheep and, and thought he could benefit from that. He'd done something for this man before. He makes that claim a little bit before this, verses 6 through 7. He says, Thus will you say to Nabal that lives in prosperity, Peace both be to thee, peace be to your house, peace be to all that you have. And now I have heard that thou hast shearers, and now thy shepherds uh, which were with us, we hurt them not, neither was aught missing unto them all while they were in Carmel. This wasn't the demand of an entitled soon-to-be king. Could a king demand things of his people like this? absolutely at every right but this was a request he, he looks at that man and he shows him respect and he says i see great blessings in your life and i pray great blessings for you and for everybody in your household and i'm asking you be a blessing to me because i also have been a blessing to you see the time when i was last down here the philistines were all around your herds but i didn't take anything you know that's what an occupying army does a lot of times whatever area they're in they they pillage it the farmhouses, they take the food, the livestock, they take it to eat, the gardens, they're ransacked. They take so that they can survive and keep on fighting. But David said, I didn't do that while I was down there. And that's backed up by the story of Nabal's own servants. In verse 15 through 16, whenever they're talking to Abigail, they said this, but the men, speaking of David's men, they're very good to us. And we weren't hurt, neither we missed anything, backing up his claim that he didn't take anything from him as long as we were conversant with him when we were in the fields. And they were a wall to us both by night and day, all while we were with them keeping the sheep David did a kindness for them because while these shepherds were out there tending sheep and probably were equipped to fight off the wolves and maybe the bears like David had when he was a boy they weren't equipped to fight off these soldiers of the Philistines the marauding bands that would come through but David was and though he didn't have to he stayed there and he defended them and he took nothing this wasn't a baseless request it was probably fair for what he asked, and he didn't ask for too much. You know, a lot of times whenever you get a gift, you want to give something back, don't you? Now, we ought not to give gifts expecting something in return. I don't think that's what's going on here, but David was in need, and he said, I've helped you before. Can you help me now? And so as he reached out to him in kindness and with praise and, and with gentleness and with a great amount of respect, here is the answer that was given by Nabal. Nabal answered David's servants, and essentially he's telling him to pass on this message. He said, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants now, a day that, uh, nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread, my water, and my flesh that I have killed for my shears and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? Uh, he's pretty insulting here. It, it is no secret who David is. Everybody knows who David is. They were singing in the street. Saul's killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. They knew who he was. They knew that he was the anointed of God at this point. And they knew that David was running for his life from Saul. It's not a secret. But here he mocks the man who has been kind and obedient to his tormentor, the current king. 
And he said, yeah, everybody's just disobeying their king nowadays, acting like they're big. And David wasn't acting this way. I'm sure that had to be quite a shot to his ego. I'm sure that had to be quite a shot. You know, whenever you're doing good and it's hard to do good and you feel like everybody's out to get you and, and you're talking nice to somebody and they just take pot shots at you, it's hard to keep your cool, you know? You, you know what I'm talking about. And here he takes this pot shot at him and he said, get out of here. He acts like he's this poor man. Oh, look, if I give anything to him, I ain't going to have nothing left. And so I got nothing to spare. I don't even know you. There's no appreciation. There's no gratitude in here. I'm not, we, we could spend a whole sermon, probably, probably more, talking about Nabal and all the things wrong with this. But I want to begin right here because while David has done a lot of great things in his life up to this point, he's about to make a decision that probably could haunt him for the rest of his life. Because whenever the word returns back to him that Nabal has not only denied his request for things that he probably was owed, but he was rude and cruel and harsh about it, he's upset. Just like many of us might be, 1 Samuel 25 and verse 13, he immediately gives a command. He says to his men, gird ye on every man his sword, and they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword, and they went up after David, about 400 men, and 200 abode by the stuff. You know, of all the big words in the Bible and all the descriptions, I love that at the end of this he said that some people girded on their swords, and they, and they got them into their, their horses, and they rode off, but some people were by stuff. Biblical word, though, you know, stuff. He's not just taking a joyride. He's not going to go change his mind, and we don't know exactly what he's thinking at this point, but he obviously didn't, he obviously said much more than what we have in this record because it had already come to the ears of the servants of Nabal exactly what his intentions were whenever he told everybody put their swords on and a mount up and let's ride. It's recorded here in 1 Samuel 25 before Abigail goes out to meet him, says David had said this, and this would be at this time, David had said, surely in vain or worthlessly have I kept all that this fellow hath in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that pertained to him and he's requited me evil for good so and more also do God of the enemies of David if I leave all that pertain to him by the morning in light any that pisseth against the wall now that may seem like crude speech there he's a madman and he's a human and so he's what he's essentially saying though is I'll kill every man in the encampment not a male's gonna survive this he thinks he can mock me he thinks he can belittle me he wants to act like I'm nobody whenever I, pre everything he's eating because of me. No, he's not going to treat me that way. Uh, I'll tell you, what he had done is he had set his heart on retribution. Uh, whenever you're this set on something, is it easy to dissuade you to turn around and change? You know, they say something with some people that whenever they have their mind set on something, there's no going back. And I think sometimes whenever it comes to a sin that has a hold of our heart, once we're this firm and grain that we're going to do it, it's going to take an awful lot to pull us off of that track. So I'm reminded of Galatians 6 and 1 at this point. And he says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which your spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. I'd have some say to me, no, well, he wasn't addicted to nothing. It's not like he was a, a serial predator. It's not like he had this, he was an alcoholic. Because that's a lot of times what we think about whenever we think about overtaking in a fault. But I'll tell you, this man was overtaken in a fault. And he was about to get a whole lot worse. He's about to commit murder. His heart was set on vengeance. Hatred had set in. And we know that our Lord told us that if any man hates his brother, and he's committed murder in his heart, right? David's overtaken in a fault. 
You know, one of the hardest things about being overtaken at a fault is there's a long time before somebody sees just how overtaken I am. And because I get more and more ingrained in it without anyone there to stop me from doing it, it becomes harder and harder to be overtaken by good, to be pulled out of that, that dangerous position of living. And I'll tell you, thank goodness for people like Abigail. You know, Abigail really didn't have a dog in the fight, if you think about it, because he wasn't out to kill her. Her husband was adult, a crude, evil, uncaring, unkind, an arrogant man. I wonder what it was like living with a man like that. You know what? Whenever she found out that David was set to come out and kill him and everybody else, she didn't even waste an ounce of her breath talking to him. She knew it would be fruitless. And I got to say, that's a sad testimony in a marriage. That's a whole other lesson right there, too. But instead of waiting around and weighing it, well, I mean, this could free me from the bonds of being, you know, under the thumb of this man. She instead looked at what this man was overtaken in David, and she set out to help him. To be someone who would see somebody overtaken in a fault and bring them to restoration. Verse 18 of 1 Samuel 25 says, Then Abigail made haste. She took 200 loaves, 200 bottles of wine, five sheep ready dressed, five measures of parched corn, she took clusters of raisins, 100, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, laid them on, on uh, the asses, and she said unto her servants, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal, and, and it was so as she rode on the ass that she came down by the covert of the hill, and behold, David his men came down against her, and she met him. Imagine this. I mean, she's got a couple of servants with her, and she's laden down with all these gifts. And very quickly she put this together, I might add. And imagine as she comes around the hill, and how many men was it? 400 men, all of them with their sword on, all of them ready to war, all of them who hadn't been fighting against the people who had been pursuing them and, and hurting them. Some of these guys there had encouraged David to take vengeance on Saul before. These are men who are, they're all right with retribution, and they're going to get a chance for it. And this little woman comes around the corner, and she comes face to face with those people. I'm going to stop again and tell you, again, she's sticking her neck out on the line where it wasn't on the line before because he was coming to kill all the men, not all the women. But she put herself in the line of fire. And I'll tell you, whenever you're going to be a, a restorer of people, somebody who's going to step in of people that are overtaken in faults, you're putting yourself in the line of fire. There's all kinds of dangers involved in that. And a lot of times it, it, we might step into those situations with the greatest intentions and sometimes naively thinking, I love them, they love me, they know I love them, so I'll step in here, I'll tell them, hey, I've seen this little thing and everything's going to be all right. And they're going to go, oh, thank you so much, and we're going to hug, and they'll repent, and we'll all smile for the rest of our life. And I'll tell you, I wish it went that way all the time. But whenever people are overtaken in sin, it's a dangerous situation. I think about this passage here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. He said, I want you to meekly instruct those that oppose themselves. That means that they're not doing themselves any favors. They're hurting themselves. If God peradventure will give them the repentance of the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who were taken captive by him at his will, we enter into sin of our own volition. You know, there's a lot of times people who are overtaken in sin, it's because they chose it and they keep choosing it. Maybe there were even more, some warnings along the way. Maybe there was some teachings in their childhood or younger years that they've disregarded to get to the place that they're at where they're overtaken in sin. Sometimes sin is just tricky and they fall in head over heels before they ever know it. But what I notice about this passage, he says that they're in a snare. 
I don't know if there may be some in you who's done a little bit of trapping before. I am no trapper, but what I do have is some chickens who get preyed on by these little furry bandits called coons. Well, we call them coons. Where we're at, we're hillbillies. And I've been on the warpath against the coons since I moved to Arkansas and got chickens. And, you know, I thought it would be a cool deal. I'd do a little bit of trapping to make a little money. And then I found out, you know what, this is like $2.50 for one of those things. He ain't making no money. They look cute, though. And I'm not going to get too graphic about all this trapping and things like that. But I'm going to tell you this. I, I, I wanted to teach my kids a lesson with raccoons because they look very, very cute and cuddly. And they'll be out there in a little paw trap. And what they'll do, there, I got this little tree out in the yard. And, and they'll be in a paw trap, but they got enough room they can get up in the fork of the tree. And they hold on to it like this. And they just sit in the fork of the tree and stare at you. And you walk up to them, and I'll bring the kids up and say, look at that, kids. Isn't that such a cute? And they'll go, oh, Tori be like, oh, he's so cute. He's so fluffy. I want to die. You know, things like that. And I'll say, all right, he looks really cute. He looks really funny. Watch this. He wants to, it looks like he wants to be your friend, right? And if you, I'm telling you, if you stick anything out towards that coon, what they'll do, they get those little coon paws and they reach out towards you. So I'd, I'd take a stick. This ain't a stick, but I definitely ain't sticking this towards it. But I take a stick and I'll reach it towards them and, and they'll reach out and they'll reach up to it. And I said, look, he, he wants to be your friend. He wants to hold your hand. And they look, oh, and, and I, he's super friendly. And, and it looks like if you'll just hold my hand, we could be buddies. And as soon as he gets his grubby little paws around whatever you got out there, he is suddenly just turns ferocious and just tries to destroy it. I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. I look silly. I don't be embarrassed, but that's okay. Animals and traps, they don't know you're trying to help them or get them get. Well, I'm not really trying to help him. But if I were trying to help him, they don't know that. They're stuck in a trap and they're wild animals. And you know what they'll do? They'll attack you. And you know what? That's what we do, Christians. That's what we do to the people who love us the most. The people who have looked at it, looked at us in our saddest plight in our existence. Whenever we look like, how could we be, how could they be any further down in the bottom of life? And they bend down and try to pick us up. And we viciously attack our brothers and sisters who have tried to help us escape the snare of the devil. All kinds of dangers. And what people will do is they'll say, you hate me and you're being mean to me. And then they go team building and they try to tell everybody else, you won't believe how rude and awful they've been to me. And then everybody else, I mean everybody else, your name's Mud. Because you tried to reach in and help someone who's acting like an animal who's your brother out of sin. Look, I'm telling you, this business of helping people recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, it's dangerous because people overtaken in sin act in awful ways. And I say that as somebody who's acted that way. Be careful. Be careful. It's a risky situation. Sometimes I, I stack up all these risks, all these risks. And, and, you know, Galatians 6 says one of the risks is that we need to consider ourselves lest we also be tempted. We could succumb to some type of sin and fall prey to sin. Somebody might, I might lose relationships. People who love me will hate me. Sometimes my reputation might be destroyed. I'll tell you, one of the most emotionally damaging and depressing things there is in this life is trying to help people overcome their own sin and to feel like you can't do nothing to help them. And you just lose nights. You just lose nights to crying and sleep and you try to pray and you can't do it because you're worried about them. So why do it? Why do it? Why did Abigail do it? Because the soul's worth it, folks. Because that person in the trap who may turn around and eviscerate you, 
they're worth it. James chapter 5, verse 19 says, Brethren, if any err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converts a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and will hide a multitude of sins. Now, he's not saying that you and I can go in there and pardon people's sins or things like that. What he's saying is that you've helped somebody come back to God. You know what? This is the story of Jesus talking about the shepherd who had not, had 100 sheep and 99 of them stayed good, but one of them wandered off into the woods. Why? I don't know. He's a sheep. But he goes out after him and he finds that sheep and he carries him back even though he's a lot of trouble. And he said, the heavens rejoice. There is great rejoicing in the heavens over this situation because one soul is worth it. You know what? Your reputation's worth it. Your, your relationships are worth it. Somebody else who might turn around and hurt you, they're worth it. Maybe they don't come back today. Maybe they don't come back tomorrow. Maybe they don't come back for 50 years. Maybe you're dead and you're gone before they ever come back, but they're worth it if they ever come back. Be a restorer. Be an Abigail. Risk it. It's worth it. She walks up to him, and this is where we get back to where we started. Knowing all the risks, as she stands before him, she comes in a very meek way. First Samuel 25, 23 through 24, Abigail saw David, and she hasted. She lighted off the ass, and she fell before David on her face. She bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, O Lord, upon me, let this iniquity be. Let thine handmaiden, I pray thee, speak in that audience and hear the words of thine handmaiden. Now I'll tell you, and as we'll continue on, you'll see that this is the meekest of confrontations. You know, it's real easy to go in guns blazing sometimes. You know, sometimes as a parent, I'm that way with my kid. Where, how many times do I got to tell you? You ever feel that way, parents? hundred times. Told you every day. I'm keep on telling you. When you going to get it? And sometimes we act that way. We're grown people. You know what? They don't respond very well to it. Whenever we walk in guns blazing, pistols firing, and ever we just come in and we attack them for their wrongs, and we're not meek, all they do, well, what do you do? You immediately put your guard up. You immediately put your defense up, and you close off from everything. The commandment of Galatians 6, 1 is, Brethren, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. He tells us to be instant in season and out of season and to reprove. That's to tell people they're wrong and to rebuke and to show them what's wrong about it and to exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, patience and teaching, meekness like we see from this woman. And she can't get much lower. She gets herself on the ground. She doesn't care what it means to her ego. She didn't come in there and go, listen, listen, you're wrong. My husband may be wrong, but you're even wronger. You're even more wrong. It didn't sound right. You're even more wrong. You big fat heathen, you big fat bully, just because you're going to be king, you think you do. I mean, she didn't do that. She comes in there, and she's willing to take it on her. You can't bit more, get much more meek than this. And she begs him, please just, please just hear me out. You willing to hear somebody out whenever you're that mad? <sighs> There's wisdom in the multitude of counsel. I think we talked about that a little bit last night. But Proverbs 1 verse 5 says, A wise man he'll hear, he'll increase and learn. A man of understanding will attain to wise counsels. Sometimes we have a misconception about what wise counsel is. What I want wise counsel to be sometimes is an echo chamber. I want everybody else around me to confirm that what I'm doing is right. And that's not wise counsel. Wise counsel is being able to hear every view around you and make a wise discernment in wisdom. You know, it's really hard to do that whenever somebody comes to you and they tell you you're wrong about something. He said a wise man will hear in those moments. And sometimes in those moments, I say that I'm listening. Elder come up to me and she said, I really want to talk about something. I'll say, okay, okay, let's talk. Go ahead. You talk. 
And, and, and I'm sitting over here, and I'm listening, right? I'm listening. Go ahead, talk. You're talking. And she goes, no, you're not listening. I'm going, no, I'm, I'm talking. I mean, I'm listening. You're talking. Keep going. And I'm just upset, even though I'm saying talk, talk, talk. And it's probably written, I mean, it's like this. It's written all over my face. It's, it's all over my voice. I'm not really listening. I'm just saying, you go ahead and get your words out till it's my turn. Boy, isn't that what we do, too? We say we're listening, but instead of really hearing what someone's saying, I'm just formulating I'm just formulating my argument, right? Rebuttals. I'll tell you, there's dangerous all, danger all through the situation, not just for the person who's coming in there to help somebody in sin, but as somebody who hears the words from somebody else, can we talk? There's danger for you that you won't listen. Sometimes we don't listen because, I don't know, we get on our high horse and we want to label everybody as a hypocrite. You know, that is probably one of the biggest defenses I hear from people today, you know? Well, I ain't got to listen to them. They're a hypocrite. They want to talk to me about that? Well, what about them? They're the worst at this. Everybody knows they're horrible. I don't know. The Jews got kind of fed up with the Pharisees, you think? That may be the understatement of the century, that a lot of the common Jews were upset with the scribes and the Pharisees. And they come to Jesus, and they said, look, all these hypocrites, they want to tell us what to do all the time. Why don't you tell us that we don't have to do what they tell us to do all the time? And Jesus wouldn't tell them that. You look there to Matthew 23, 2, 3. He says, look, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. All things are all therefore whatsoever they, they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and they do not. Now that's a hard saying. I don't like it very much. You know what he's saying? Sometimes hypocrites tell the truth and you need to listen to them and then do what they tell you to do. But I don't want to do that. You know what? In Matthew chapter 7, he talks about judge not lest you be not judged. And it's a warning to hypocritical judgment. That's what it is. He said, because whenever you start getting into other people's business, when they're clearly overtaken in a fault, but you ain't got your life in order, you're not this spiritual person, not this Abigail, you need to know what they're immediately going to do is they're going to just start throwing things right back in your face. That's dangerous for me, and it's dangerous for you, because if I've got a problem in my life and I can't stop for a moment to self-examine and to weigh the truth of that, you know what the biggest danger is? is I avoid looking at my own faults. I keep on doing it till the day that I die, and I wind up at those gates, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you that work iniquity. Why? Because I wouldn't listen to a hypocrite. Hypocrites are pretty good at seeing faults, folks. Spend a lot of time avoiding looking at theirs so they find everybody else's. Chances are if a hypocrite sees something in you, he spent a lot of time studying you. And maybe he didn't mean it in the right way. Maybe he didn't come in love. Maybe he didn't come in meekness. But don't keep on sinning because a hypocrite said, hey, we need to talk. You know, one of the biggest dangers, whether it's a hypocrite or somebody who loves you very dearly and comes in a very kind way, one of the biggest dangers that we face as someone who needs to talk with someone to be restored is that people won't come talk to us anymore. Matthew chapter 7 there in verse 6, you remember when he said, don't give that which is holy to dogs and neither cast your pearls before swine lest they turn again and rend you. And I need to ask myself sometimes, I need to ask myself, am I a dog? We talked about dogs. It's not very, not very favorably talked about in the scriptures. Pigs, definitely not something high on the list of things that Jews thought well of. And Jesus says that we can either be dogs or swine, that people should avoid giving us pearls of wisdom. They should avoid coming to us and doing Galatians 6.1 and trying to pull us out of sin. Why? Because we're the person who whenever someone says, can we talk, that all we're going to do is try to rip their life to pieces. And you know what I do? I become the person that someone looks at and they say, man, I want to help them so bad, but I can't because I know how they're going to react. And you know what I lose? I lose one of my greatest assets in Christianity. 
And that's the accountability of all these people who love me. That's all the years of experience of the people who've waded through the problems I'm struggling with and they feel like they can't come talk to me. You know, there's a handful of time in the scriptures that the Bible warns not to go talk to people who are sinning. Utter not words of wisdom into the ear of a scorner, lest he hate thee. Right? A couple others are escaping my memory right now, but they're there. We'll go find them sometime. Matthew chapter 7, 6 is one of them. Look, there's a very serious danger here for David. That he could approach this woman with all the hatred in the world. He could have brushed her off as somebody just trying to protect his, their, own, their own life or their husband's life. And he could have gone on and he committed the sin. But instead, I think he listened. I think he listened probably because he had a good heart. But also in part because that she didn't place even more obstacles in front of him to change. Listen to this eloquent, loving, kind, understanding woman and the speech that she gives him. We won't spend a ton of time on it, but in brief, let's examine her talk to him. Because he does. He does uh, humble himself, and he's willing to hear, and he listens, hears her out. First Samuel 25, 25, she said, let, my not, let not my Lord, I pray you, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal, for, his, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal's his name, follies with him. But I, thine handmaiden, saw not the young men of my Lord whom thou didn't send. I believe one of the things she's doing here is she's relating to him that his hurt is legitimate in some ways. And she said, look, I understand. I know why you're mad. He's my husband. And as much as it pains me to say it, Nabal, he, his name is his namesake. He's adult. That's what she's saying. And he acted very foolishly here. He is a man of Belial like the servants have said. He's acted worthlessly and he's evil here. And she said, please... Please just, just know that I know where you're coming from. And I, and I think that goes a long way sometimes to come in to be relatable to people. The Bible says to condescend to men of low estate. And that doesn't mean to come in and talk down to them and to say, they're there, little Ian. I know you're all wound up. That's, that's not the condescension. It means get on their level. It's like a parent who really wants their kid to see how sincere they are. And they walk up to them. You've done this before, Justin, haven't you? And you get up and you bring them right here close to you. And you're eye to eye and you're telling them, I understand. And you want them to see the sincerity. That's what it means. This is what that woman did there. I understand why you're wounded. And I understand why this is a big deal. And she said, but please, please understand, I didn't know this was going on. And I'm here to make this better. I'm here to help in this situation. Verse 26. Now therefore, my Lord, uh, my Lord, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord hath withholding thee from coming to shed blood and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, now let thine enemies and they that seek evil uh, to my Lord be as Nabal. One of the things she does is she quote unquote assumes that he wants to do the right thing. I believe that's kind of what she's doing here. And that's what I want to do with people sometimes because I don't want to assume the worst of everybody. I'll tell you, that's an awful life. To go around assuming evil of every person, that's hard. But what she does very tactfully here is she goes, look, I know that you don't want to do anything evil. You've been a good example. You've been upright. And she said, and I know that at the end of this, you're going to choose not to shed innocent blood throughout this situation. Now, she didn't say that the Nabal's innocent, but you're going to come and you're going to uh, uh, prevent yourself from avenging yourself with your own hand. And what you're going to do is you're going to let your enemies be left to the Lord. And all the ones even in the future, you'll let them be like this situation. You'll let the Lord handle it. So she's assuming a lot of things here, right? She's trying to make sure she... She's very, very humble, very meek. Uh, I say this is probably tactically a shot to the ego in some ways. Now, I don't believe she's being disingenuous. What she is trying to do is use a form of psychology to tell him, here's the right thing and you know the right thing. 
It's the very humble way to do it. Verse 27 through 28, she goes on and said, And now this blessing which your handmaid has brought unto my Lord, let it even be given unto the young men that follow my Lord. And I pray you, forgive the trespass of thy handmaiden, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. And the evil... And evil hath been, uh, not been found in thee all thy days. Now, it's very, very confusing because she uses my Lord with a little L talking about him. And then Lord, my Lord with a big L talking about, you know, the Lord on high and things like that over and over. But essentially what she's getting to him here is going, look, he wouldn't offer a blessing to you. And that's what you wanted, right? Well, I come here and I want to I give you more. I want to give that to you because you deserve that. Because you know what? You deserve these great blessings. But what I'm asking for you to do in doing the right thing, I think I just lost some battery here. In doing the right thing, I'm asking and pleading with you that as I give you this gift, just forgive him. You know what's hard to do? It's hard to forgive. There's another understatement, right? We all teach it. We all preach it. We all listen from the pulpit and go, that's right. We ought to forgive our debtors, or we want the Lord to forgive us as we forgive our debtors. And I think that that's a scary statement sometimes because I can't be very forgiven. But she advises him that. Whenever he has been very wronged and sincerely wronged, she said, please forgive, accept the gift, let the Lord be your blessing. Don't let an evil thing be found in you. You've been doing so good. I respect you. Don't, Don't ruin it now. She continues on, verse 29, she said, A man's risen to pursue you. Here she goes. She's talking about Saul a little bit here now. Someone's risen to pursue you and to seek your soul, but the soul of my Lord shall abound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God and the souls of thine enemies. Them shall he sling out as the middle of a sling. Now, one of the things that people don't like doing sometimes whenever they're having hardship is counting their blessings, but she's forcing him to count his blessings. I know you've had a hard time because somebody's been chasing you down. Somebody's after you for revenge, but I want you to remember the Lord has been blessing you. He's been preserving you. And, and, and he is going to keep taking care of you and preventing your enemies from getting to you. In verse 30, it'll come to pass when the Lord will have done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning thee and will have appointed thee ruler over Israel, that this shall be no grief to thee, nor an offense of heart unto my Lord, either thou hast shed blood causeless, or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord will have dealt well with my Lord, then remember thine handmaiden. You know what she's saying is you've lived upright before the Lord for a long time, but here you are overtaken with this crusade of anger and vengeance. And she said, one of these days, God is going to make you king. And you have all of these years you can look back on and with a good conscience can say, you've given everything to him. She said, but what you don't want to do now is to do something you're going to regret forever. It's hard to see things like that when you're overtaken in sin. She's dropping logic bomb and truth bomb and principle and blessings and you know, psychology and all these things along the way. But I'll tell you what she was not doing anyway. Anything in any way, shape, or form through this is just using the wisdom of man. And so often that's what we do and how we mess up when we're trying to help people with their sin problems is we come in there with my logic and my opinion. Because it's the first thing that we think of. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul said, My speech, my preaching, was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And Paul came and said, Look, there's a lot of people with a lot of good opinions around there. You might have a good opinion. I always feel like I have a good opinion until, until it just blows up in my face, you know? But he said, I, 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 I'm not coming in, in, the, in this wisdom of the world. You know, the world's got some really twisted wisdom things that seem like they sound good. Humanistically, they sound good. And they really do appeal to the flesh in a lot of situations. He said, but that's not, that's not me. I'm going to come in the wisdom of God. 
And there'll be a demonstration of it and, and its power. And the only way we can have that is if we're going back to the Word. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture, it's given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, duly furnished to all good works. You want to know why she was successful in part in the situation? Is because she didn't come and say, Well, I think this is how you should have handled this, and, and I, I think that you don't deserve this, and I think that you do deserve this. She didn't do the I thinks or I feels or I believes. Notice everything she's putting in here. Here's fact. Here's the way you have acted. Here's what God has done for you. Here's what God will continue to do for you if you do this. If you actually take this route and it's the wrong route, here's how you're going to feel and what it's going to do between you and God. She came in there with truth. God's truth. It's enough. You know, God's truth is enough. And sometimes I don't have enough faith in it. I mentioned that a little bit last night about sometimes I'm worried about these situations. And, and yeah, we game plan and we war plan to go into these moments and to try to help somebody with their sin. And that's all well and good. But at the end of the day, I need to trust that the word of the Lord will do what he says it'll do. That it will not come back empty to him. That it will change the hearts and minds of mankind. That I got a plant and you got a water. And you got a water and I got a plant. Wait, I said the same thing backwards. I got a plant, you got a water. And I got a water and you got a plant. And then God gives the increase. i got to trust. And maybe it'll end up this way. But not always. People are free moral agent. They get to choose. But maybe it'll end up the way that this story ended up. He turns to her and he doesn't bite her head off. They don't lose a relationship. He doesn't go on to continue spiraling down in the sin that he's overtaken of, of hatred and revenge. But he looks at her and he remembers. You know what? This is from God. Verse 32 he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel that sent thee this day to meet me. Whomsoever the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And I believe that that chastening is offered to all of mankind if we'll but hear it. And in that moment, in that speech, in that situation, in that little woman there, he saw the Lord. And he understood that everything that was given to him, it was God right there. As if God was whispering into his ear, because this is what God does. Whenever we sin, he tells us, he shows us through the saints, through our brothers and sisters, maybe through our moms and dads, or even our children, or our, our lifelong friends, or our spouse, that we've been wrong. And instead of just brushing it off or being angry, he praises God in that moment. And you know what? <laughs> I don't. That's a relief when that happens. And I wish it happened a whole lot more. Will that be the case for you? If you're in David's shoes, will you prepare your heart to the point that someone points out a flaw, a sin to you, that instead of thinking up your response, instead of trying to find an excuse of why they're not seeing it right, will you be able to just thank God that he has a plan of accountability in his kingdom where your sin won't go unnoticed until it destroys you? And then maybe you'll be able to see clearly to be able to say, and blessed is the advice that I've been given. And that you can appreciate the wisdom that's used sometimes. You know, sometimes I want the echo chamber. Sometimes I don't want to hear. Sometimes getting out of sin is hard. You know why? Because you don't get your reputation back right away. I don't. I don't get every, every privilege in relationships that I had back right away. It's difficult. And sometimes I feel like a, as somebody who's had to rebuild a reputation, sometimes over and over again, it's not easy. And I want it to be done and over with. I want someone to say, no, everybody else. You know, it's everybody else's problem and not your problem. But the truth is, it's a long way back sometimes. Look at Saul. Great example of it. That's a whole other sermon. Though. I'm getting off track here. Saul rebuilt a reputation with the Lord by his service and his commitment to the gospel. 
And he wasn't someone who sent Ananias away. He appreciated the wisdom. What do I need to do, Lord? One of your brethren will tell you. That's why he said to, to Saul of Tarsus, right? Be grateful for wisdom. It might not be what you want to hear. It may be the hard thing to do, but it be, will, will be the thing that helps you. Blessed be thou which hast kept me this day from coming to shed blood, from avenging myself with mine own hand. You know what you do? I, I guarantee you can relate to this. You see a loved one overtaken in a fault. And the first thing you do isn't run rejoicing to be able to point out, Aha! I caught you, you dirty, filthy sinner. You don't do that, do you? You agonize over it. You agonize over it and you plan and you pray and you study and you want to find the perfect verse and the perfect way and the perfect demeanor and the perfect facial expression and the right clarity and all the wisdom of the world and you map it out and you plan and then as you start that conversation, you know what you say? You know that I love you. That's how you start that, right? I love you so much. I want you to remember that. And this isn't easy, and I don't want to do this, and I, and I just hope you know that I love you. And you say it over and over and over, and you know you just feel like it's not enough, but you just really want them to be prepared to know, hey, I really love you. Don't hate me. You know that's how you act before you go to say, can we talk, how you feel. But then the moment somebody else says, can we talk to us, they can't have possibly felt that way. Maybe I need to prepare my heart a little bit more to know that if somebody says, can we talk? It probably didn't happen this morning. It probably wasn't a decision that they came to lightly. There was probably some tears shed. There's probably some sleep lost. And there's probably a lot of fear that they were able to tamp down because they love us that much. And because David was a man who had his heart prepared, whenever someone finally loved him enough to say that, those words, please listen to me that he was able to look at her and say, thank you, I love you for this. As fate has it, <laughs> her husband died a handful of days later. And David, as he looked back on that woman, here's about the death of Nabal, he went, you know what I want in my life? I don't want the ones who spurred me on to vengeance, then encouraged me to keep spiraling into sinfulness. I want the one by my side who said, stop and think about it. Can we talk? Just a couple of things that I think about when I think about 1 Samuel 25, and I don't know where you are in your, you are in your life tonight. We talked a lot about being bold and being someone who will be this spiritual person who will step into someone's life and restore them. And if you need to be encouraged in that, I, we'll do whatever we can to strengthen you, help you, game plan with you, whatever we can do. Pray with you if that's all you need. Pray for you. But this evening, if you're somebody who someone has said, can we talk, and you've blown it off, or you've just pushed it to the back of your mind. Or maybe there's just bitterness inside of you over it. And you need change in your life. And you need peace in your life. Come to the Lord because he's good. His advice is good. And his people love you. Please sit on these front seats while we stand and sing this last song. Jesus.